Hi, everyone, and welcome to Make Data Human. I'm your host, Anjali Beatty, and today we're going to be discussing climate change and how we can use behavioral science and neuromarketing principles to more effectively combat climate change. Joining me is my favorite data enthusiast, Michael Wolf, and we have a special guest with us today as well, Prince Guman. Prince is a professor of neuromarketing and the author of the book Blindsight that dives into how our brains are wired and how that influences the decisions we make. Super interesting and mildly terrifying stuff. This is going to be a really fun episode because we haven't had such different perspectives at the table to tackle such a big issue. So to kick us off, Prince, talk to me about neuromarketing like I'm a five-year-old. What is it? How does it work? What does it help us understand about people? So neuromarketing is applying the fundamentals of neuroscience to marketing. And there's two ways to do it. You can either go down the imaging route, which is hard research, applying EEG or fMRI imaging with test subjects and gaining insights from there. Or you go and use the principled approach, which are neuroscientific principles already established and the insights gathered and turn those into marketing hypotheses that you can test and scale up. So to bring it to my five-year-old self kind of level, basically I'm using different types of devices that are attached to people's bodies, the EEG, for example, to see sort of what they're responding to in the event that they're stimulated by something or that they see an image or see a certain color, something along those lines. And that gives me a sense of how people are going to respond to something. Yes, and that would be the hard research side. Absolutely. And the next piece, which actually you see a lot more when people are practicing neuromarketing, is you take all the insights that someone has already pulled out. So the neuroscience of attention, for example, and instead of actually going through and doing an EEG, EEG for you all listening is, it looks like a shower cap with an octopus in it. And it just senses electrical impulses from your brain that correlate with certain behavioral responses. And Instead of having to do actual EEG, you just take these insights and then you test them piece by piece from something as broad as messaging strategy to something as specific as email subject lines and beyond. So essentially what I'm trying to say is you can take the imaging piece out because that's a lot slower while still being able to execute on some of the fundamentals of neuroscience in the world of marketing. Super, super interesting. So From both of your perspectives, we've got behavioral science and we've got neuromarketing. Where do they reinforce each other and where do they start to diverge? I think the behavioral science approach can be easily and best used to gather the data that you want in order to achieve the final effect. So if we talk about sustainability and making people uh, maybe separate waste. That has to do with choices that you make or changes that you have to make. So we would look at propensity for change. Are you willing to change? Can you actually change something like ability or skill, et cetera, et cetera, those types of principles. And then I would think that as as soon as you have that data gathered and you have a rather in-depth understanding of people can change, will change, or have the ability to change, You could say, but how are we going to create messaging that will actually resonate even more? So knowing the type of words that you have to use, what will get them to pay attention even more? So then integrating what what Prince just said into the execution strategy for it. I mean, to answer your question on what is the interplay between behavior science and neuromarketing, it it reminds me of my first trip to Thailand. It's same, same, but different. They are related 
but different. We're almost asking what the difference and similarities are between baby blue or sky blue. Ultimately, you know, it makes sense what Micah said. I would just say neuromarketing perhaps brings a whole new set of hypotheses to ask that you can then plug into behavior science and the third layer of data and be able to answer some of these larger questions. Okay, brilliant. So let's take that and now jump into the world of climate change. I'm not sure for both of you, but from my perspective, it's probably one of the hardest things to message around because essentially what you're telling people is, hey, the planet's going to die and the planet's going to die in like 100 years and the apocalypse is going to happen. And everyone freezes and goes, uh-oh, what do I do? You know, we hear recycling, we hear certain new behaviors that we should adopt, but we're so immobilized by the fear of what's going to happen 100 years from now that I either freeze or we sort of go into our cocoon and go, eh, not really my problem. Maybe I just shouldn't have kids instead. And there's a lot of different ways that people react to climate change and climate change messaging. What are your guys' thoughts on why people have such a difficult time changing their behaviors to adapt to climate change and climate change realities? I think it's the tangibility of it. You, you just mentioned fear, fear of the planet uh, not existing anymore in 100 years. I think a lot of people cannot imagine it if you haven't experienced it firsthand. So we had a really hot summer here in the Netherlands and everybody says, yes, yeah, global warming, planet's heating up. But yeah, there were also hot summers when I grew up. Does that mean I'm going to die or that my children or grandchildren are going to die in 100 years or the planet will explode? I cannot comprehend that. So I might not believe it and, and fear the latter part. Um, absolutely not. So I think there might actually be a lot of people that are not fearful of it to begin with. And uh, the more we create or try to create fear, but people don't experience that fear, I don't think those types of narratives will uh, resonate very quickly. I agree. I think part of the reason the response feels a bit ambiguous to climate change is the fear-based tactics. And I, f and I feel like that's an important enough theme for the three of us to bookmark for maybe 30 seconds or 90 seconds from now. But I, I did want to bring up one other thing. It's the entire comms and PR on climate change feels a bit like the sky is falling and feels a bit doom and gloom. So although it is doom and gloom, and I understand that the scientists are raising the alarm, but we psychologically attenuate. And there's been research after research that shows how quickly we attenuate, right? So we can look at a goldfish and go, well, you have a 20 second memory. Well, we have 20 second future memory in sense, right? We can only look far ahead for so long. There's an entire uh, branch of studying behavior dedicated to this in behavior economics. This is how irrational we are. And one of the branches of behavior recon is how poor we are as humans, as a species about predicting future happiness or unhappiness, right? So and you stitch that with all the research out there for attenuation. A lot of it comes from lottery winners and how they win millions and millions of euros or dollars or pounds and their happiness level evens out, right? And there's all, and there's all this research. So I think one of the ways I could conjecture that for this conversation is not only are we bad at predicting future happiness, we're just bad at predicting our mental state in the future, let alone how our mental state will affect our actions to take for or maybe against climate change. And I think fear strategy is part of that, but also we're just not good at predicting what's going to happen in the future or acting today for what is in the best interest for us tomorrow. It just is too intangible. And I think the fear on top of that, it doesn't quite work because we're attenuating to the fear messaging and we're not good at predicting the future. 
So what will work? What kinds of narratives would resonate? I think, if anything, the last uh, eight years across the globe have, have proven that if you just pick an identity, people will either love you or hate you, and either way it'll drive attention. So I, I, I'm going to say, instead of fear marketing, I think identity-based messaging around climate change would be the next hypothesis that I would test. What does that mean? What does it say about you as a person when you take a stance on climate change, right? So I'll use a negative example here. What does it say about you as a person if you're in America and you chose to wear a mask or not, right? You are signaling an identity with a mask on your face. And I think, you know, that's a divisive tactic that was clearly well thought out from the political strategists. But I think a version of that is what I want to test. How can we add an identity piece to the entire climate change piece? That would be my question out loud. I think you could. There's also a risk for it, right? It creates polarity. So if you're a mask wearer, you're good. If you don't wear one, you're bad. So you get the, the good versus evil thing. The climate change uh, debate has a huge risk of disinformation and, and uh, deniers, right? It's not happening. It's not coming towards us. I think you're right. Uh, I think we have to create a certain type of identity around this topic, uh, whichever that may be. But we have to be very cautious in not creating the pros and the cons, because that's also very easy for humans to then just pick a side and stick to it, right? Once you've made that choice, it's really difficult to leave that choice uh, behind because you're part of that group now, right? So the in-group, out-group. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then you're only going to validate what feeds the in-group zeitgeist and vice versa. No, I agree with you completely. I'm wondering, we're not going to solve this in this conversation, but you bring up a good point. Can we create an identity that is not polarizing? Because I do think that's one of the answers or maybe one of the questions to ask out loud, because I feel even people who do care about the environment, and I'll be fully transparent here, I care about the environment. I don't know what I have done to positively affect climate change personally, right? And that's just being honest. And, and I don't know what my action items should be. And I'm being completely open about my ignorance. And I care about the environment, right? What does that say about my identity? It's not strong enough. And, and ironically, the, the positive aspects of people who pretend, and we can also talk about this, actually. Think about, you know, the classic rational um, system one, system two, and classic system one, system two thinking, Daniel Kahneman's work. And you think about how purchases can help you signal if you care about the environment or not. And this is probably heartbreaking to hear for all the climate change strategists, but the way I see it is people who own Teslas have gotten a way of being able to signal that they care, but it's performative, right? But then you created you create a product that has social hierarchy and value signaling in a different form built into the product that also help, helps you justify using system two logically why I bought the Tesla is because I care about the environment when that's not really why you bought the Tesla, but at least that product has that baked into it. So can we create something similar out loud? Hope that made sense. I think it does completely, but a very large majority of the world population will never be able to afford a Tesla. So if we talk about uh, more underdeveloped countries that have a high uh, propensity of still using fossil fuels in the future, because you know they cannot just switch really that easily or, or us helping them. What do we need to do to support them? Or where can we bring more uh, more effect or more result? 
Uh, I think the the most disturbing thing I sometimes see is labels labels on clothes or percentages being used and saying this will reduce X amount of paper in trash uh, here and there. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but people use a lot of numbers, a lot of data. It's just completely intangible. So I think there there's a big responsibility in the education part, which starts really, really early in creating awareness that the things that you do have effect from a very young age, uh, basically imprinting norms and values that when you want to create an identity, what you just mentioned before, before people start developing their own identity, have some consequential thinking. You know, if you shower for 10 minutes, yeah, it might be really relaxing, but it's actually really bad for the rest of the planet. I mean, I don't know if your mom told you when you were growing up, when you didn't finish your plate of food, she would say there's actually a lot of children in Africa that are really hungry and they would be really jealous of your food. I think it's something similar here, right? If you if you take a hot shower, it might be really nice for you, but somebody else uh, might be really cold in a, in a few years' time. So, so how do we do that? How do we endorse? How do we endorse that type of thinking, um, like in schools? You brought up a good point, Micah, and I, I do think, in so many ways, people might be calcified, right? That there's 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 yeses, nos, and the maybes. Who people who care about the climate, and of course, we can use all of our superpowers as uh, behavioral scientists or or behavior designers to tap into the maybes. But I think. The biggest maybes are the ones who haven't turned 10 yet. And I think to be able to reach them, the answer is content. The answer is storytelling. And the answer is, and then I hate to put it on Pixar and Disney, but that world creating narratives that, that, that kids emotionally connect with that are linked to potentially an identity of someone who cares about the environment. So when they turn into adolescents and young adults, it's baked in. Right. So I think that's part of it. Start with the kids is probably a good way to to bring about longer term change. Yeah, I completely agree. I was just going back into my own memory bank and thinking about what was it that made me care about the environment. And it was proximity to horses and growing up in Northern California and seeing that sort of landscape. But it also was, and don't laugh at me, it was the Disney movie Pocahontas. How so? Because nature, the environment, being at one with the elements and just seeing, and so much of the story and the way that it's portrayed in the Disney film was settlers come in, invade the territory, kill the natives, destroy the environment. And perhaps, you know, it's because Pocahontas had the same skin tone as me. Maybe that was a bit of it as well, but it was seeing the degradation of these natural elements and the animals and the trees and the water of which these people lived at in such incredible harmony, to me was just heartbreaking as like a seven-year-old or however old I was when it came out. So Disney had a huge effect on how I saw the natural world. And I'm sure for lots of young kids below the age of 10, it's probably the same. Absolutely. So we've talked about different types of narratives. We've talked about kids and how to, to educate children on climate change. But what about for us in the 25 plus age bracket, who it's not an education thing anymore. It really is more of a influencing behavior and influencing beliefs and influencing values, or for instance, as you said, influencing identity to an extent. Have you seen any campaigns that have done it well? I genuinely don't know because every in my head, when you ask me that question, only thing that comes up are more fear-based tactics and and dull, ineffective fear-based messaging. So 
No, if it's fear-based in my head, it's already ineffective, at least in this world. So I, I can't think of a, I can't think of one right now. Micah, what about you? Yeah, I actually saw one a couple of days ago. Um, well, at the moment, energy prices in the Netherlands are skyrocketing, right? The average family will pay like four or 500 euros a month in just gas bills at home. So currently, a lot of people are, are forced <laughs> to save energy because otherwise it will cost you a, a lot of money. And I think one of the initiatives I saw the other day because we're we're moving into uh, uh, in, into some times where we get compensated by the government up to a certain amount, and if you go above a certain threshold, you have to pay more to calculate for yourself when would you be above that threshold. And I thought that was actually a really smart approach because it 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 actually connects direct consequences, financial consequences to it. It's the same when I go to the supermarket now. Uh, our local supermarket here doesn't have any plastic bags anymore. It's only paper bags. But you only you also get a discount at the register if you bring your own little reusable bag. So it has a sort of direct monetary reward for it if you uh, perform a certain type of behavior. So those types of campaigns, I think, are really, really smart because you connected something that people generally care about a lot, <laughs> which is money. I think one of the things that makes climate, this conversation, like, can we brainstorm a good campaign for climate change? And we're all sort of in this ambiguous response stage, right? And I think that's part of the problem. I don't know what the call to action is. I understand that there's that the world is warming. What can I do about it? And all this fear-based stuff, the world is ending, but something as simple as marketing 101, what is my call to action? How do I even define climate change besides the impact of the world going, getting warmer by the year. That should not be ambiguous, but that is ambiguous to me as a layperson. I'm not an expert in climate change in any way, shape or form, but it still should not be billions of dollars that we've spent over the last 20 plus years on messaging around climate change. The fact that I can't think of a single tangible thing, really, I mean, I'm being slightly hyperbolic, but really what is a call to action? Which aspect of climate change should I attack or can I do something about beyond no longer using plastic straws and, and plastic paper bags? What else can I do? And I don't frankly have a clear answer. And I think that is, that is a failure from the messaging side. And I'm not willfully ignorant. I'm open and I'm very much not even in the, maybe in the yes pile, not no, not maybe I'm in the yes pile. And yet there is not a clear call to action for me as the audience to take. Wouldn't you say, Anch, Micah, that that's that sort of, that shows the ineffectiveness? And it's just, again, qualitative, just one person's opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. And and not only that, so that call to action, but also ability and being helped by certain entities to be able to do so, right? You can say to me, you should recycle, but I literally cannot recycle because the product I want to buy is packaged in plastic. I think laundry detergent is a, is a really good example. So I literally cannot because that's the only shape or form it comes in. So what can I control? What can I not control? And I think that's where also some of the responsibilities in these in these campaigns lie. Who has that responsibility? I think a lot of corporates should realize they actually have a responsibility to say, maybe we should shop that uh, stop that type of packaging. It might look nice from a marketing perspective, you know, a nice sleek roundy bottle that makes you feel soft. So you'll buy fabric softener or anything like that, you know, but also to say, no, wait a minute, 
we're going to switch to to another shape or form. So to also change the actual marketing thought behind it in order to give me the ability to choose. Because ability is one of the things that, that you need. Huh? You need skill and ability before you can actually perform a type of behavior change. And right now I can't, or edible packaging or anything like that. Something that I can influence, something that I can control, that corporates can can facilitate in. So that's when it becomes a, a more like an ecosystem. But the call to action, yeah, for sure. Just tell me what to do, because <laughs> I don't know now. And I think, again, leaving the, uh, the social impact of the polarity behind, it, it was a very clear, lowest common denominator action you have to take. Put on a mask or not put on a mask. And it's public and it's visible. And that is in, in and of itself a monkey see, monkey do. Uh, and that's dumbing down the research quite a bit, but monkey see, monkey do. So you've got very clear call to action. Put on a mask equals you're progressive. Take off the mask means you're not progressive or whatever that means for you, right? So the action was very clear and the signaling of your identity with that simple action was very clear. So I'm wondering what that action would be. And I know we're not going to solve it, but I'm, I'm curious if we can brainstorm and just throw something out there about what indicator that, and, and remember, there's examples of this that, that aren't so evil. So I'm sorry I keep talking about <laughs> the mask thing in, in the US, but think about about 15 years ago, um, Armstrong had the Live Strong bracelets. And those Live Strong bracelets said something about you, right? And then there's Breast Cancer Month in the US, and I think it's global. Um, and Breast Cancer Month, you wear a pink bracelet. What does that say? It signals that you care, that you've donated, and it brings about awareness, right? And that's a very small way of doing it. What I'm saying is we don't even have that. We don't even have a rubber band version of I paid $5 this month because I care about the environment enough that I paid as much as half of an avocado toast sandwich, right? Like that's what I did. We don't even have a way to signal that that is a clear action. And I think that's probably a good place to start. And it's a very small drop in the bucket to signal an identity that also has a clear action for everyone else to visibly monkey see, monkey do, replicate. Prince, sort of following along that line of thought, let's pick something random, like recycling. What would be an interesting campaign idea to get people to recycle more? Like, give me a narrative, give me images, colors, themes, the works. What would we do for recycling? I think the comp that comes to mind is how people sell multivitamins, right? Take these pills and avoid hair loss, which is fear-based, or take these pills to have healthier hair. So I think uh, I think I would like to use something with recycling that adds instead of subtracts something. So not fear-based. And, and, and I'm trying to think of a theme instead of a loss frame, a gain frame. What are we gaining from recycling? Yeah, I saw something the other day on the BBC, which was about the level of waste that's in the sea, just off UK shores. And people are still going swimming in that. So you can imagine the kinds of things that they're running into feminine products, wet wipes, all sorts of things that are not pleasant. Nobody who goes for a dip in the sea wants to bump into those things. So I wonder perhaps if there's a way of then taking something like recycling or like what we, the amount of trash that we use and tie it to something that is an innate pleasure of when we go on holiday or when we're in nature and bring those two things together. This is completely out of left field thinking, but um, 
I think it would be great if uh, you could commission artists because there's something about art that story tells and there's something about art that inherently connects and, I, I, and, and to be able to almost say, send a message about recycling through art and, and see what that looks like and maybe turn that into an event that is live, live televised and, and give them just a tiny, tiny bit of a North Star to go towards and say, we're not, we want to practice not loss framing in this art. And that's the only limitation we're going to put on art and see how you execute. I'm still sticking with the monetary reward because it's a very quick win. Depending on how much waste you put in your waste bin, you get a discount. So the less waste you put in your bin, so rather than having a, a fixed contract per year, you know, trash collection, $40 a year, you know, no, but if you have half the weight or half the plastic, it'll be $20 a year, or it'll be, you have direct, direct effects that you can spend on something else. So reduce your waste, spend it on your family or on a nice holiday. That's the gain thing. And it's very tangible as well. Saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that makes you a little, a little bit more cautious, I think, when you buy something and choose the packaging. Uh, but it depends on if you talk about recycling or actually separating waste. I think the, the monetary reward that we've seen from experience in, in smoking campaigns and non-smoking campaigns, you can put all the cancer patients on the packaging that you want. People will still continue to smoke unless you make them really, really expensive and then they'll say, okay, maybe I'll just quit because it's just too expensive for me. And that's an incredible example to use is smoking because in, essentially that is what everyone, nonprofits, governments, companies have been doing for the last 10 years around climate change storytelling. Yes. We've been putting the guy with the gums and the teeth falling out everywhere, thinking that that's going to, to change people's behaviors. And of course, it, like with smoking, it didn't. And certainly with this, it hasn't either. No, but that's attitude versus behavior, right? We can ask somebody, do you think smoking is bad? Yeah, I think it's really bad. Do you still smoke? Yeah, I do. Because, you know, it makes me feel good around my friends or whichever other motivation they might have for it. But that's the thing. Do you think climate change is important? Yeah, it's really, really important. Do you want to? You want everybody to die? <laughs> no, I don't. Are you going to recycle plastic? No. You know, so that's, that's the question, right? When would you be willing to recycle plastic? Yeah, that's been that's been researched quite a bit that the, the, the cigarette fear based showing a burnt out lung has not worked. And I think it's similar to most of the messaging around climate change because it's clearly fear based. You're doing a loss frame, but also it's it's addictive. Right. Uh, let's just say nicotine is one of the most addictive substances on Earth. Full stop. And that's just a whole different world, whereas climate change doesn't have the addiction compulsive behavior aspect to it. What made me think about it, whether it's taking a very emotional route with storytelling or taking a very incentive-based, almost game theory-esque approach that you're suggesting, Micah, I think to answer this question without turning into a brainstorm session, you could use neuromarketing. We can criticize the fear-based marketing, but everyone who executed on there did, did the focus groups, did, did the surveys, they did all the research. I'm questioning if they did any neuromarketing research. Because with EEG, there are certain things you can tell despite what the person reports, right? So I'm just going to give you guys a quick list. We can, with EEG, which is, again, like I said earlier, a shower cap that looks like an octopus on your head, you're able to tease out certain things. Is the person surprised by the stimulus in front of them? Is there an association taking place with the stimulus in front of them? Are you grabbing exogenous attention? Exogenous attention is attention driven by the outside as opposed to internal? Are they wanting to repeat 
an experience or not. Again, you can look at the level of the brain and be able to tell if they want to repeat something. And I, I actually summarize that as preference. Do I like or not like something? We can actually test brand vocabulary. So when I say hard seltzer, what does that mean to you? When I say sustainable materials versus recycled materials in this t-shirt, how does that resonate? And we can also test attraction, wanting to approach something for the first time. And these are the accepted indicators of behavior we can get from EEG. So I guess a bigger question is knowing that we have this new way of removing bias, how can we use that to perhaps come up with whether it's, Micah, what you're suggesting or, or the crazy art thing or something completely different? Like how can we play with these levers to actually understand what will work? And I think we haven't done that. And I don't know, again, I'm not a, I'm not a climate change expert, but I am saying that there are ways to do the market research and ask the questions by getting to the level of the brain that we perhaps are not doing. So if we if we would take the assumption that monetary reward would make people change behavior, because that's that's what we've seen from from other examples. What could you do um, EEG wise to do some kind of example uh, in saying every time you throw plastic in the recycle bin and not the the general waste bin, you see an image of your bank account that says "kaching ten cents." What could you could you measure in an EEG that would signal? Yeah positive consequence. Yes. Yeah, so you could, in essence, create a static collateral, let's just say a, a billboard that communicates the message that you're talking about and have them read it with the EEG on their head. And you can able to test for or look for indicators that want to repeat the experience or not just based on the brain impulses as initial reaction. And then you can ask them on a scale of one to 10, how much did this ad resonate and how likely are you to take this action? But in reality, we don't really, we can see that maybe to measure the dissonance, but we really want to see what's happening at the brain. And then you show them a different ad. Here's this art exhibit, whatever it is, right? In this case, we'll just say it's an art exhibit and then it gets a static image of that and then look at the level of the brain and see what was the like, likeliness to repeat with that. And you measure those two things and then you know at the level of the brain, not what self-reported, what resonated better. And then maybe that is the one that makes it to the next level before you execute on it at a local or a global scale. Isn't there another factor in all of this, though, which is that for all the focus groups and all the surveys that are supposed to be informing these communications campaigns, that they're asking attitudinal questions? Like, Prince, the example that you just gave of, do I want to repeat this experience, yes or no? Attitudinal question. It doesn't actually get us to who somebody is, their beliefs, their values, their motivations, everything that we talk about on this podcast on a very regular basis. And so it's actually, you have sort of three critical issues happening simultaneously. The focus groups that were, are being conducted and the, the way that we're creating measurement instruments and extracting that data, that's flawed. We're not going to the brain level and using things like EEG. And we're defaulting to fear-based narratives because that's what we think is going to work, even though, again, like anti-smoking campaigns have proven it doesn't. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. I think the attitude versus behavior um, litmus test, it, it needs to be more prevalent. And I keep thinking of fMRI research, but that it just doesn't scale uh, as quickly as EEG does. But again, it, it just comes down to asking better questions and measuring better responses. Um <clears throat> I wonder if I wonder if there's a data piece there before we start probing at the brain. I wonder if there are different aspects of how people are t 
taking action to look at look at what they are doing differently and, and look at the data and scrape the web to see what correlations perhaps there are to drive behavior that we can do a quick and dirty scrape of the internet and and, and do some sentiment analysis or, or NLP analysis. And, and maybe there are some insights from the data world that we can stitch either before or after the neural piece that removes further removes bias. There's got to be. Yeah, absolutely. There definitely is. And it's looking at what sources are relevant and then going to that layer of social group dynamics, social conversations, looking at psychometric attributes, cognitive state when talking about relevance or climate change related issues. There's so many different factors and variables that can be extracted. And you, know, you mentioned sentiment analysis and something you know, we've found in a lot of our work in the past is that emotions are inherently fleeting. Emotions are not stable predictors of behavior, but psychometric attributes are and motivations. So one's values, especially in this instance, are a really powerful predictor of whether something's going to resonate and whether one wants to take action. So I think that's the layer we need to be getting to, perhaps even before we get to the storytelling component of trying to understand what, how is it that people actually frame everything to do with climate change and then what's going to motivate them. And then that enables us and Mike, I love your idea. It's brilliant in terms of using sort of financial gain as that key lever to get people to change their behaviors. And even from the level of whether it's policy and taxes or it's discounts on your housing bill or whatever it might be that financially motivates people to start actually developing those habits, it's critical. Yeah, it's also integrating a little bit and not nudge theory here and there. We're not really into nudging, <laughs> are we, actually? Why are we into nudging? I mean, just for Prince's <laughs> context. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's do an entire episode on that one. But uh, <laughs> but it's, I, I'm, yes. I was triggered by um, uh, what you said in the beginning, uh, uh, because our attention spanner is so incredibly so short. You know, I can separate waste now and at the end of the year I get a bill and think, oh man, I saved me some money. Yeah, how can we satisfy instant gratification in saying if you do something, you get immediate well, you get an immediate pat on the back, an immediate financial pat on the back. So as soon as you open the bin, you throw it in the left one and ka-ching, something somewhere pops up and said, you just saved a cent. And that makes you <laughs> do it more often and more often and you just see your money growing because you think, oh my God, I'm performing good behavior. It's a little bit the reverse of what they're trying to do now uh, in the European Union with uh, paying uh, carbon footprint contribution. So the higher your carbon footprint, the more you have to pay. No, what about the other way around? The more I save, the more I get back because that's positive reward. <laughs> so how can how can we achieve that? And which part of the brain would you say, well, that's the part that you need to address? Because, you know, when it comes to instant gratification, we would have to use, I don't know, is it, it's, does it have to do with uh, indulgence or happiness or which part of the brain would you say we should speak to? While you were saying that, I think a larger question and a larger approach, Micah, I think uh, is ethnographic research. So we're just layering on another tactic is... Ethnographic research is essentially playing an anthropologist. You sit in and live in the real world environments of people. So it would be, you know, the Dutch for you, Californians for me, the Brits for Ange, and and you sit and you watch their real life unfold and you study them. And then you come back with 
whatever strategy you can come up with. And I think we've talked about a data-based approach. We've talked about an incentive-based approach. We've talked about a neuroscience-based approach. And perhaps the pillar that needs a little bit more love is ethnographic research. And, and of course, who's, who's first to do ethnographic research? The first example that, and it, that I can think of is the, uh, was the Pepsi case study from a few years ago. I think it's been about 10-ish years when they decided to create a contrast in how their messaging went from, frankly, not being very memorable to live in the moment. So going from just this ambiguous Pepsi, we're cool, here's a bunch of pop stars we sponsored to we are all about the present, the moment. One of the key drivers in that insight was the ethnographic research that they did. They hired a small army of ethnographic researchers and they went and lived with people who consumed soda, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, what have you, and lived with them for weeks and weeks and came out with another data set and insights that they eventually applied. So I, I'm wondering if climate change, again, I'm not a climate change expert. I don't know if ethnographic research has taken place for some of these messaging around there, but I would love for it to take place on top of some of the data stuff we're talking about and the neuromarketing EEG stuff and the incentive-based stuff. Yeah, because this type of communication uh, and behavior change is not universal globally. That's for sure. <laughs> if your if your life your whole livelihood is dependent on a landfill, you don't want that landfill to disappear, right? Yeah, I agree. It's certainly not universal, and fear based uh, is certainly not the answer. And I think on that point, the lack of cultural adaptation and the types of communications around climate change is a huge, huge issue. And that certainly needs to change. This has been a super fascinating episode. Like there's so many rich nuggets in here that could really make a difference in how data is collected around the storytelling, et cetera. Before we wrap it up for the day, I'm wondering any last thoughts on what you think nonprofits, governments, thought leaders in the space need to take into account when thinking about how to message effectively around climate change? Think about your audience and creating empathy and sympathy at the same time. Because you can create empathy, but I think we're not creating a lot of sympathy right now. If you keep uh, pushing the fear-based approach, uh, I think it will get uh, reverse effects. So uh, better understanding your audiences from a much broader perspective than we're doing right now. And mainly also ability. Like, can people actually perform that behavior because I think we're taking uh, the assumption that uh, people can, where often they really can't. They're just incapable in the broadest sense of the word. And I think that's a very uh, arrogant approach, pointing the finger at people and saying, you need to do this because all hell will break loose if you don't. And some people just can't, you know. So create more empathy and sympathy for your for your actual target audience. For me, I would say, give me or give the people, give the audience a very simple single action. If you can only have people do one thing full stop and you do all the measurement behind it, whatever that action is that brings the most amount of impact, you tell me what to do and create, whether it's empathy-based, whether it's, I'll even say fear-based, whatever it is, I hope it's not fear-based, give me an action. Make it very clear what I can do in order to show that I care about the environment and actually make an impact in one small human sort of way and scale that up. I think that's the biggest thing for me. Guys, this was brilliant. And I'm sure this is going to inspire a lot of ideas for people who are really in the thick of this issue. So thank you, both of you. And thank you to everyone who listened. 
You can find us at thepsychaigroup.com and where all good podcasts live.